Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Menega. In this episode, I talk with Mark Charles. Mark is an indigenous activist, public speaker, and author of Unsettling Truths, the ongoing dehumanizing legacy of the doctrine of discovery. Also musically featured throughout this episode is The Chairman Dances. The Chairman Dances are an indie rock band from Philadelphia. You can get connected with Mark and the Chairman Dances and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. And when I come Today I have Mark Charles with me, and Mark does some of the most incredible work. And also, Mark, I've never talked to a presidential candidate on this podcast, so this is going to be exciting. Um, but with all of that said, who is Mark Charles to Mark Charles? Well, thank you very much, Mason. Let me begin by introducing myself. Uh, so, Yate, Mark Charles, Yenishia, Sinbake Dina Nishle, Dotohiglini Bashishikin. In our Navajo culture, when we introduce ourselves, we always give our four clans. Mm. We're matrilineal as a people, and our identities come from our mother's mother. So my mother's mother is American of Dutch heritage, and that's why I say loosely translated, that means I'm from the wooden shoe people. My oh. second clan, my father's mother, is Tohiglini, which is the waters that flow together. My third clan, my mother's father, is also And my fourth clan, my father's father, is Totochitni. That's the Bitterwater clan. It's one of the original clans of our Navajo people. Huh. So when I introduce myself, I am literally giving you my four clans, my relatives. This is where I came from. This is who my ancestors are. And I very much identify as the son of both my mother and my father. Because Navajo is matrilineal and... Western culture is patriarchal, you know, to most Americans, they would see my father and say, well, you're Navajo, but to my Navajo relatives, they would see my mother and say, oh, you're Dutch. Mm. And so it, it's really led me to coming to this understanding of myself as I'm not half Navajo or half Dutch. I am Navajo and I am Dutch. Mm. And I work very hard to have as much integrity as well as as much connection to both of my parents and my relatives mm -hmm. on both sides of my family as I'm able to do. The second thing I just want to acknowledge is I'm speaking to you from what's now known as Washington, D.C. And these are the lands of the Piscataway. So they're the nation that were here hunting, farming, fishing, raising family, burying their dead long before Columbus was lost at sea. And they're still here. So I want to acknowledge the Piscataway mm -hmm. as the host people of these lands. I want to thank them for their stewardship of it, and I want to publicly state how humbled I am to be living on their lands today. 
Well, thank you so much for that introduction. Um, one of the other things that um, you, you were fully is you are also fully a writer and you published a book a couple years ago called Unsettling Truths. And it's all about the doctrine of discovery. And I think it's an incredible book and I want to talk all about it. But before we jump into it, um, was this your first book, by the way? Yes, this was. I've been blogging for about almost 15 years now, okay. but this was the first book that I, I actually wrote. I'm a co-author of it. My co-author right. is Sung Chan Ra, who mm -hmm. is a professor at North Park Seminary, actually moving to Fuller Seminary in Southern oh, California cool. this year, this summer. He'll be there next fall. Um, but he and I wrote this book together, and I am very pleased with this book as the dialogue is generating, mm -hmm. the message we're able to put into it, and many, many conversations that are coming out of yeah, it. Yeah, wonderful. Well, with it being your first book, what did you learn about yourself as you wrote the book? I learned I don't like writing. <laughs> <laughs> You've been blogging I for all that time and you didn't know it until let, you wrote a book? Let me rephrase that. I, <laughs> I, I appreciate writing. The challenge with writing a book is, and we, we thought the book would take about a year to write, and it took about four, almost five, to get oh, the wow. whole thing from when we signed the contract to when we published it. And the biggest challenge with that is for five years, I literally at every moment felt like I should be doing something else. Like no matter if I was, what I was doing, I always knew I had this book that had to be finished in the back of my right. mind. And so that just leads to, there's always this sense of no matter what you're doing, oh, I should be working on my book, or I still have this deadline that's in front of me that I need to get finished. That being said, um, I really like the opportunity to express myself through writing. Mm. I started doing that through my blog, uh, Reflections from the Hogan, back in uh, 2007, 2008. And uh, I've written for different journals and had, have pieces published all over the web. But writing the book, I was very excited about just the opportunity to kind of lay out I don't want to say all of our content, but a full, all of, I was excited to lay out everything we had, as much as we had mm, to have mm -hmm. a very long discourse with people. And, you know, it's now almost a year and a half later since it was published in November of 2019. And the book is still selling very well. And it is still very much contextual to the challenges we're facing today, mm, whether mm -hmm. it's the Christian nationalism that's rising up or the, the blatant racism and white supremacy in our policing system. You know, the challenges that our nation is facing right at this moment are the very same issues that we're raising up in the book. Right. And it's so refreshing to be able to just tell people, yeah, you should read this chapter or you should look at that right. passage in this book because it's addressing some of the things that are going on in our nation today. So yeah, so writing the book was, it was really good. The other thing I learned about myself is, and when this is one of the reasons it took so long, is I had to emotionally allow myself to wrestle with the stuff we were writing. Mm. Um, whether it was writing about my, my own life and the accident I was involved in, or whether it was about writing about, you know, the deconstructing the myth of Abraham Lincoln. And mm -hmm. even allowing that myth that was in my own life about who he was to mm -hmm. be deconstructed um, and understanding what he really was about and what he was trying to do. And so there were several points throughout the process of writing this book where I would literally have to put down my computer, not just for a few hours, but sometimes for a few weeks, even a few months at different points, 
Hmm. because I had to emotionally work through the stuff that I was writing. And uh, that extended the deadline by probably at least a year, a year and a half, Mm -hmm. because I had to lament and work through emotionally the stuff I was Mm. trying to put down on paper. But the process, you know, writing with Sung Chun was an incredible uh, gift. He is a brilliant author. He's a great friend. He and I have become even closer friends through the process of writing this book. And everything that he brought into this project was amazing. Um, his his uh, academic research and um, he even helped just edit a lot of the book. You know, he's written several books himself, Prophetic Lament, The Next Evangelicalism. And so having his expertise in the process with me was an amazing experience. And I think it made it go very, very well. I love that. I love that you both were friends before writing and then became closer friends afterwards. I mean, I, I think sometimes those projects, um, when you do that together with somebody, only can strengthen that kind of friendship. I have a, another podcast that I do with my best friend, and that podcast has always been like a thing that has brought us closer. So I love that these little projects can oftentimes become a really incredible thing for our friendships with people. Yeah, yeah. And, and just going back to my initial point, I sensed the book was published. I have done very little writing since then. <laughs> so in almost almost two years now, I've done very little writing. I'm just now getting to the point where I'm feeling kind of the itch of, oh, you know, because okay. it's a different, it's very different experience expressing yourself verbally mm-hmm. or in lectures and expressing yourself in writing. Mm-hmm. And I was so drained from the writing process at the end of writing the book that I took on very few writing projects over the past two years. Mm-hmm. But I'm just now getting to the point where I'm thinking, okay, I should probably think about doing some more writing and getting some things out in front of me. Um, and it's it's a it's a different and even more in depth experience than it is speaking or lecturing on a topic. Wow, great! Well, if any publishing houses are listening, you know who to talk to. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm sure that many of my listeners have, at the very least, have maybe heard of the Doctrine of Discovery or maybe are familiar with it. But for those who are unfamiliar, uh, and I'm sure you could talk about this for hours upon hours, but for those who are unfamiliar, what is the Doctrine of Discovery and why is it so evil? Yeah, so the Doctrine of Discovery, very quickly, it's a series of papal bulls. Edicts of the Catholic Church, written between 1452 and 1493. It says things like invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens mm-hmm. and pagans whatsoever. Reduce their persons to perpetual slavery, convert them to his and to their use and profit. It's essentially the church in Europe saying to the nations of Europe, wherever you go, whatever lands you find not ruled by white European Christian rulers, those people are subhuman and their land is yours to take. So this is the doctrine that let European nations colonize Africa and enslave the people because they didn't see their humanity. It's the same doctrine that let Columbus, who was lost at sea, claim to have discovered North America. Our book starts, the first chapter, the first sentence is, you cannot discover lands already inhabited. (laughs) You can steal those lands, you can conquer those lands, you can colonize them, you can't discover them unless your understanding is that the people who are there are not fully human. Mm. So this doctrine is a dehumanizing doctrine that centers the European Christian male. Now, this doctrine gets embedded into our foundations. 
Our Declaration of Independence refers to natives as merciless Indian savages. Our constitution never mentions women, specifically excludes natives, counts Africans as three-fifths of a person. We have legal precedent referenced as recently as 2005, referencing by name the doctrine of discovery as the legal precedent for land titles. Basically stating that, actually literally stating that because natives are savages, we only have the right of occupancy to land. And Europeans who are quote unquote fully human, they have the right of discovery to the land. So therefore they have the fee title and they are the true title holders. Mm. I gave a TEDx talk on a, a Supreme Court case in 2005, the United Indian Nation versus the, the city of Sherrill of New York. And uh, it's the last Supreme Court case um, to reference the doctrine of discovery by name. I identify it as one of the most white supremacist opinions by, written by the Supreme Court in my lifetime. Wow. And that opinion was written by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And mm -hmm. so this is the challenge. It gets embedded into our foundations and it literally leads us into, because we have the understanding that natives are not human, it is a part of the justification for the genocide of native peoples. I mentioned earlier when we were talking about the writing process, I had to deconstruct the myth of Abraham Lincoln. One of the biggest, the, the two of the hardest chapters to read in the book are the two chapters, I think they're either nine or 10 or 10 and 11, that is dealing directly with Abraham Lincoln. Most people will say, well, he is our nation's savior, right? He brought us from a nation that enslaved people to a nation that abolished slavery. That actually isn't what he did. The 13th Amendment doesn't abolish slavery. It redefines and codifies it under the jurisdiction of the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. Just this week, the U.S. Senate passed a bill declaring Juneteenth a national holiday. It now has to go to the House. But they're, they're, they're claiming Juneteenth, the 19th of June, as the day slavery was abolished in the U.S. That's not true. Chattel slavery was ended, but slavery was merely redefined and codified and put under the jurisdiction of the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. We have not abolished slavery as a nation. And that was part of Abraham Lincoln's legacy. He was a blatant white supremacist who literally, in 1862, he signed the, the, um, the Homestead Act and the Pacific Railway Act to complete the Transcontinental Railway. Within two and a half years of signing that bill, he has literally ethnically cleansed the states of Minnesota, the states of, of Utah and Colorado, and the territory of New Mexico of native nations and native peoples to make way for the three primary routes of the Transcontinental Railway. He is one of the most genocidal presidents in our nation's history. And yet we celebrate him as a hero, not in spite of what he did, but actually because of it. Mm. he's the, the president who helped us complete Manifest Destiny. He is the president who dealt with the merciless Indian savages identified in the Declaration of Independence. And so this dehumanizing doctrine of discovery, not only does it have this horrible legacy of oppression, enslavement, and even death for people of color, but it leads white people to literally celebrate genocide. And this is why we call the book Unsettling Truth. 
because we don't know whether it's whether when we're celebrating Columbus Day or or the 4th of July, or even Thanksgiving, if you read the proclamation that, that Abraham Lincoln gave to essentially establish our modern version of Thanksgiving, and you look at the things that happened in the country the year before he wrote that proclamation, again, he is literally calling for a national day mm-hmm. of Thanksgiving as the nation gives thanks for the fruits of the genocide his armies were actively committing the year prior. One thing that I loved about your book and I think is an incredible insight is that it's not necessarily offering a way for reconciliation, but conciliation. Can you talk about why that distinction is so important and what conciliation looks like for you? Yeah. So, you know, one of the challenges with with, uh, our nation one of the things that I identify in the book is that American exceptionalism is the coping mechanism for a nation that's in deep denial of its genocidal past, as well as its current racist reality. So in other words, our nation, the majority culture, white America, has to cling to this mythology of exceptionalism, which is rooted in the lie of white supremacy. Because if they're not exceptional, Right. If they don't have a manifest destiny, if they don't have a land covenant with God of Abraham, if they don't have a special relationship with the God of the Old Testament Bible, then they are merely another white supremacist, colonial, and an oppressive group of people. And that thought's unfathomable. So they cling to this narrative of exceptionalism. And so one of the things that you have to do, especially if you're a person of color aspiring to run for political office, one of the most unifying themes in U.S. politics is the theme of American exceptionalism. Mm. So we had in 2016 Donald Trump saying, make America great again. Hillary Clinton responded and said, America's great already. Mm. In Mm -hmm. fact, in one of the debates, she expanded and said, America's great because America's good. Donald Trump stopped, looked directly at her and said, I agree with you. I agree with everything you just said. So they both agreed our past, our foundations, our history were great. They disagreed if we were great in 2016. Mm. At the Democratic National Convention, President Obama jumps into the fray. He says America's already great. Cory Booker, African-American senator from New Jersey, he's giving a speech endorsing Hillary Clinton. In his speech, he acknowledges that the Declaration of Independence calls native savages. He acknowledges that women are excluded from the Constitution and that there's a three-fifths compromise for African people. And at the end of that section of his speech, he says to the white majority of the Democratic base at the DNC, He says, but these things do not detract from America's greatness. He would never say that in a room full of people of color. He would never say that to a room full of black people, a room full of native people, or even a room full of women. The only reason he said that is because if you want to get the support, the money, and the vote of white landowning men, you have to tell them how exceptional they are. And so the language we use is peppered with this exceptionalism. So the use of the term white privilege, right? White privilege makes it sound like white people 
have been given a blessing that they just have to learn to share better. That's mm. not true. What they have is the fruit of oppression. Mm. It's a racial oppression that they're they're benefiting from. That's not something to be shared. It's something to be confronted. The same thing with racial reconciliation. Racial reconciliation implies there was a previous harmony. Mm-hmm. That's not true. Race is a human construct. In the U.S., race was constructed for the purpose of oppressing and dividing. Racial reconciliation is a myth. It's a misnomer. It's not accurate. So once we, we recognize that, and again, it, it leads to this notion of exceptionalism. Well, we used to be have this great foundation. Now we're having some problems. We have to go back to where we were before. That's not true. Right. And so I've learned to, to and I, I've had other Native leaders tell me to my face, I used to use the word racial reconciliation. And I've had Native leaders tell me, you can't use that word. It's not accurate. You can't use that word. And so finally, I'm like, okay, so what can I use then? And I looked at the root of reconciliation, which is conciliation. Mm-hmm. If reconciliation means to, to restore a previous harmony, conciliation is merely about mediating a dispute. They both acknowledge, they both can bring us to a better place, but one is more honest about our history, where the other allows the myth to perpetuate itself. And so I began using the term, this was probably back in 2015. I began using the term racial conciliation. Mm. And as I began gaining a vision that we needed a national dialogue on race, gender, and class. A conversation on par with the TRCs, the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions in South Africa, Rwanda, and Canada. I decided, yeah, but we can't call it that. Because again, that affirms this myth of exceptionalism. So we would need to call ours a Truth and Conciliation Commission. Mm. And so I've I've learned because of the myth of of how American exceptionalism is so peppered throughout our, our worldview and the way we think and express ourselves. I've learned to be very con- concise and clear with my language. Mm. I almost never refer to it as white privilege. And I do not use the term racial reconciliation. I always use the term racial conciliation. Mm. Mm-hmm. God, I think that is just so brilliant and wonderful to think. That, that's a conversation that um, I'm, I'm currently in a class called Theologies of Liberation. And that's a conversation we're constantly having especially um, as we've been reading someone like Dr. James Cone and the, you know, the possibility for uh, racial reconciliation presupposes that there was a conciliation to begin with. Right. And that's, I think the brilliance of, of your work and, and others who have talked about this is that there simply needs to be conciliation before there can even be a reconciliation, which I think is just so incredible. During my campaign, I published a blog article and it was about the theme of nostalgia. And I talked about, even we saw this in 2020, where we had President Trump running again to make America great again, and Joe Biden running to restore the soul of America. Mm. And I was pointing out that the only people in the United States who can look at our nation's history with any sense of nostalgia and say, ah, remember when, the only group of people who can do that is white men. Mm-hmm. African-American people, Native Americans, women, LGBTQIA2S+, any other marginalized group of people cannot look at our past with nostalgia mm-hmm. because 
our past was so wretched. And so this is, again, this is one of the things that we have to, we have to learn how to look at our past much more honestly mm-hmm. and then find a way to move it forward. But we, we can't allow that history to be defined by the people that it was written to benefit. In a lot of cases, oppression manifests in land. And land tends to be the heart, in a lot of cases, of oppression. And I think for Christians in particular, the Hebrew Bible is filled with stories about land and who, uh, whose land it is, whose land it isn't. And those kind of questions are wrestled all throughout the Hebrew Bible. So I'm kind of curious, like for you, uh, um, with your with your background in the Christian faith, how has your Christian faith shaped your understanding of land and whose land it is? And um, yeah, I'm just kind of curious yeah. about your sense of like a theology of land, if you will. Well, when I when I was in uh, when I was in a pastor of a church in Denver called the Christian Indian Center. I began meeting with a group of indigenous leaders from all over the world. Um, it was called uh, the World Christian Gathering on Indigenous Peoples. And at that time, this was in early 2000s, we were meeting almost every year, if not every other year, uh, in different nations around the world, hosted by the people indigenous to those lands. And I began building relationship with leaders from all over the world, including um, uh, uh, some Jewish leaders from Israel. And I had a relationship with one of the leaders from Israel, and I actually spent some time with him in, in Jerusalem. And I did discipleship. He would, I went to Jerusalem, and he was kind of mentoring me in his work there. And then later he came to my reservation, and I mentored him in my work among our own people. And one of the things that he said to me when I spent time with him in Jerusalem is he said, Mark, as an American Christian, you've been trained to read the Bible incorrectly. You've been trained to read the Old Testament like it applies to you. And it doesn't. The Old Testament is about God's covenantal relationship with the people of Israel. And so we, as Americans, we claim these promises in the Old Testament like they were ours. Second Chronicles uh, 7.16, I think, is the, if I remember correctly, the passage that says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, I will forgive their sins. I will hear their prayers, I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. What church has not prayed that at some point, especially in the last four years or even the last five months, Mm. right? As whenever we have a national crisis, the church clings to that verse. Well, that verse was written at the dedication of the temple when God reiterating the threats and promises of his land covenant. We as American Christians do not have a land covenant with the God of Abraham. There is nothing in the scriptures that say, if we confess our sins, he will heal our land. The example mm-hmm. I, I use frequently is, I, you know, if, if you have a child or a nephew or, or a relative who steals a bike, right? And they, they steal this bike and they're riding it and they, they, they don't take care of it and it gets run down, tire goes flat, paint starts peeling. And eventually they come to you and they say, mom, dad, auntie, uncle, I stole this bike, right? Now, maybe you help them fix the bike, but do you let them keep it? Mm. Do you let them keep the bike? No, <laughs> no one would do that, right? And so this is 
this is the challenge we face as American Christians is we've been trained through the heresy of Christendom, Christian empire, to read the Old Testament like it applies to us, and it absolutely does not. Mm. And so one of the things that I have been pondering a lot is what does it mean to be indigenous to lands? And the challenge with most Western Christians is they have long willing, most of them willingly, some of them not willingly, but they've given up their their opportunity to be indigenous to their lands. They've left them for whatever reason. And they've colonized or taken over other lands. And so what does it mean to to respect the people, the indigenous peoples on the lands that you are on? And this is where what's so crucial in Native American sovereignty is the issue of treaties, Mm. right? The, the, The Constitution states that treaties are the supreme law of the land. And the United States of America has written literally hundreds of treaties with Native nations. Essentially, every single one of those treaties have been broken. Mm -hmm. And the challenge is, is, so if you break a treaty, right, as we learned with Iran just a few, a a year ago, when the Trump administration broke a treaty with Iran around the nuclear deal and they pulled out of that treaty, that meant Iran was no longer bound to the terms of that treaty, Mm. right? Things, when you break a treaty, you go back to where they were before. The problem with the United States of America is when it breaks treaties with native nations. Now, the treaty may say we will move this tribe from their lands in the east and establish them on a reservation in Oklahoma. And then when they break the treaty, they would say, "Okay, well, you no longer have the the reservation in Oklahoma. But technically, that means the U.S. government no longer has rights to the land on the east coast. Mm-hmm. Right, because the treaty you should go back to what it was before the treaty was established. The fact that the United States feels it can break treaty with Native nations, and there's no consequence. This is the doctrine of discovery, and so you know one of the things I, I point out to people is most Americans they they truly believe that treaties are a Native issue because they establish our reservations. In part, that's true, but it's not fully accurate. Every single American is dependent upon a treaty. If you don't have a treaty that you can point to, establishing the right of your city to exist where it is, of your house to be on the land it's on, then technically you have no rights to that. Mm -hmm. And so the issue of treaties is not just a Native issue, it's a U.S. issue, it's an American issue. But because of the doctrine of discovery, we don't treat it that way. Mm-hmm. We treat it like it's it's only a native issue, and they're the only ones who have anything to lose. We're the only ones who have anything to lose in this scenario mm-hmm. when that's not true at all. This is why I just think like a reimagined like understanding of a good theology of land is just so important because land just seems to be such a core piece to many of these issues of oppression. Um, 
white supremacy knows no bounds when it comes to land and is willing to do whatever it can to have dominion. I use that word intentionally, have dominion over land. Um, and yeah, I think this, this is why like, I have really been exploring yeah. kind of a, a better reimagined understanding of, of a theology of land lately because of how important this is when it comes to systems of oppression and um, the work to oppose it and dismantle that. There's a really good book out there um, by a native author. His name is Stephen Newcomb. The book is called um, Pagans, in, Pagans in the Promised Land. Mm. And he's not a Christian, but he goes very in-depth into the dominion mm. <laughs> and the domination mm -hmm. that is enacted by Christendom, right? This group that believes, and, and this is the problem, right? When 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 Americans believe that they have a land covenant with the God of Abraham, when they believe that they have a manifest destiny over Turtle Island, when they believe that this continent is their promised lands, and then when you go back and you read the Old Testament, especially the books of Deuteronomy and Joshua, well, what was their command? How are they to claim their promised lands? It was literally to commit genocide. Mm. Leave no man, no woman, no child, no animal left alive. And so this then becomes part of the American psyche, which is because we have promised lands, we can enslave African people and we can mm -hmm. commit genocide against Native peoples, and there's no guilt there. That is a part of our privilege to claiming our promised lands. Mm -hmm. And this is where I, I tell this to American, white Americans all the time. You are not God's chosen people, and Turtle Island is not your promised land. I do a lot to actually identify the dysfunctional relationship between the United States of America and the modern nation state of Israel. When Benjamin Netanyahu was here in 2000, I think it was, uh, what, 17 or 15, 16, mm -hmm. he was here and he was speaking to a joint session of Congress. This is 2015. He was speaking to a joint session of Congress. He was lobbying against the nuclear deal that the Obama administration was, was negotiating with Iran. And he was invited to speak to a joint session of Congress. Now, that Congress, just like today's Congress, was completely divided. Mm -hmm. They weren't speaking to each other. They were on opposite ends of, of the polls. And he had to get everyone on the same page behind him. And so early in his speech, he said, because America and Israel, we share a common destiny the destiny of promised lands. See, the United States of America and the modern nation state of Israel have a very dysfunctional, codependent relationship that has nothing to do with freedom, equality, or justice. Mm -hmm. It's about justifying oppression. We need, old, we need the modern nation state of Israel's Old Testament understanding of promised lands to justify what we did as a nation to mm. Native peoples and African people. And the modern nation state of Israel needs our continued flourishing as a nation with a manifest destiny to justify what they are doing presently to Palestinians and Bedouins. Mm. Mm -hmm. Our relationship is very dysfunctional. It's incredibly codependent. It has nothing to do with justice or equality. It's about justifying both oppression and even in our case, genocide. And it's around this misappropriation of the Old Testament understanding of promised lands. Afternoons at home. 
transition uh, from land to water now and you have been at the forefront of water activism in your opposition to the Dakota Access Pipeline Uh, and again I think the Christian tradition has a lot of water as some of its most central elements you know things like baptism and foot washing and so many other stories and and symbology and um, elements of water are in the Christian tradition how has your theology of water if you will been a really important part of your faith and how has it been shaped by your water activism? I would imagine you sort of think of water beyond just, you know, the the physical necessity of water. I'm sure water yeah. means something more to you than that. So yeah, I'm just kind of curious like how your theology or understanding of water has been shaped by the activism yeah. work that you've been doing. As over the past 20 years of my life, almost 30 years of my life, as I've made very intentional choices to step back into my identity as a native man. My, my grandparents were boarding school survivors. They became Christians in the boarding schools. They didn't pass the culture on to my father, so he didn't have it to pass on to me. And so I moved back to the reservation with my family in the early 2000s. We lived in a hogan with no running water, no electricity, a one-room dirt floor hogan, six miles off nearest paved road on a dirt road. Our neighbors were rug weavers and shepherds. And our, our, our son, our, our son was there with us at the time, and he was maybe two, three years old, three or three years old, I think, when we moved into, into the Hogan. And the first thing we had, and again, this is the desert Southwest. The first thing we had to teach them, teach him, is that water's not a toy, mm. right? We had to haul our water. <laughs> so we don't play with water on the reservation, right? When you're hauling your water, from miles away, it becomes increasingly valuable. Mm. And so, you know, we, we actually, we use just out of necessity, a very conservative amount of water because it was so much work to get it to our Hogan and we didn't have the convenience of running water. So that was one of the first things. Second, on the reservation, on our, and the reservation's largely in our traditional land. It's the high desert of the Southwest. There's no major rivers or even major mm-hmm. lakes in that area. It's, it's a high desert. And so irrigation for most of our reservation is not a reality. And so any sort of planting or farming that you do is dependent upon rain. And it's a desert. You're almost always in a drought. Mm-hmm. And so I actually had a commitment while I lived there. I'm like, God, I will never complain about rain. No matter what plans it disrupts no matter how inconvenient and rain could be very inconvenient we literally could be stuck at our hogan because the the road leading to our hogan was mud we were stuck there in the winter one time for almost two weeks we couldn't get in or out because of the mud that was on the ground and so rain could be incredibly inconvenient but i said to god i will not complain about rain because we always need it. It's always a blessing. And so that, that experience of living there very much began to shape my perception of water. 
one of the things and just how valuable and life-giving it is. Another another step in that process was I, I helped found a conference called Would Jesus Eat Fry Bread? Hmm. And it's a gathering for Native students from all over the country. It was founded with both crew and InterVarsity and some work I was doing at Calvin uh, University in Grand Rapids. And we would gather Native students once a year on a different res, a different church uh, somewhere around the country, and always hosted by people from a local community. And we would do communion at, at our um, conference. And we would always use elements local to that area, right? Because grape juice or wine is not indigenous to most of North America, at least a lot of, a lot of places around North America. Mm-hmm. And so those probably wouldn't be the elements that Jesus would have used had he been tromping through the deserts of the Southwest. And so we would use elements of the, and one, I think it was on Yakima Reservation where we used water and blueberries, I think it was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> those were those were our two elements. And just to see how for the Yakima people, central water was to them, mm-hmm. right? Because kind of, we often think of water, we know it's essential, but we're like, we'd rather have juice or soda or something else, you know? But they, the Yakima people hold such a, a, a high value for water. And that was really kind of eye-opening to see how that whole nation, that native nation held water in such, I think it was the Yakima. I'm hoping I remember that correctly. And then the, uh, the third thing was actual, the standing rock protests. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I had been saying for a number of years is that native nations need to understand that we are not the victims of an oppressive colonial government we are the host people of the land Mm. and we need to step into our role as the host and what i saw at standing rock even though it wasn't successful at least not immediately but we had something completely unprecedented we had tens of thousands of native peoples from hundreds of native nations coming together, committed to the teachings of the elders, mm. to prayer and to peaceful protests in a unified voice, telling our colonizers, you can't drink oil and water is life. Right? The challenge with this nation is it doesn't understand, doesn't have a relationship with the land. Mm-hmm. One of the the things I, when I was living on our reservation and I was being confronted with how marginalized our communities were, and I was wrestling with my own insecurities and anger towards the history as well as the reality, the current reality, and I was trying to process through these conversations and these thoughts with my non-Native friends, um, and I was, every time I would talk to them, I could feel kind of the anger rising up in me. And I would have to, I would have to hang up the phone so I wouldn't start yelling at him. So then I began to kind of disconnect emotionally so I could stay in the conversation longer. But the, then I stayed in longer, but then they would start getting defensive and agitated. And soon they would hang up the phone. And I didn't know how to bring the dialogue I wanted to bring. And one time I was writing a letter. This was like the 10th time to get them to understand how it felt to be Native 
and living on a reservation in the middle of this country. And I said, it feels like our native communities are this old grandmother who has a very large and beautiful house. And years ago, some people came into our house and they locked us upstairs in the bedroom. Today, our house is full of people. They're sitting on our furniture, they're eating our food, they're having a party inside our house. Now they've since come upstairs and they've unlocked the door to the bedroom, but it's much later. We're tired, we're old, we're weak, we're sick, so we can't or we don't come out. But the thing that hurts us the most, that causes us the most pain, is that virtually nobody from this party ever comes upstairs, seeks out the grandmother in the bedroom, sits down next to her on the bed, takes her hand, and simply says, thank you. Mm. Thank you for letting us be in your house. I've used that metaphor, that analogy, around the world to initiate dialogue between indigenous peoples and their colonizers. It's one of the most effective tools I've developed to initiate this kind of conversation. And the reason I think it's so effective is because it reframes the conversation. Instead of talking about victim versus oppressor, we're talking about what is the root of the problem, which is this reversal of roles. Mm. Where we literally have, in this country, we have 300 million ancestors of undocumented immigrants. They've never asked for, nor have they ever been given permission to be here. They don't know why the rivers flow where they flow. They don't know why the mountains lie where they lie. And they live here like you might live in a hotel room. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, you have 6 million indigenous peoples who've been pushed aside to reservations and allocations of land on the margins. And we're being treated as unwanted guests in someone else's house. And this is where we have to reverse those roles. We need our Native peoples to step in, into the conversation, to step up and claim our role as the host. And in essence, we need to train our uninvited guests how to live here more properly. And that's what I saw happening at Standing Rock. Almost while we were not successful at that point in ending the pipeline, but as far as Native America, Indian country, Native nations coming together and stepping into our role as the host and trying to train, to teach, to educate our colonizers of how to live here in a better way, it was unprecedented. Mm. And part of that message was you can't drink oil. Water's life. Mm. So yeah, I, I, those are some of the things that when I think about water and how important it is, you know, it wasn't until I moved to DC and DC actually gets more rain than Portland and Seattle. Um, we, have, we, we're, we get a lot of rain here in DC and it comes year round. Every week we have a, a few, one or two days of rain, it seems. And it was after moving here and experiencing about three years of a lot of rain. Where I'm like, okay, God, I might complain every now and then. <laughs> but, um, but living on in the desert, I was like, yeah, I will never complain about mm -hmm. rain. And mm -hmm. even to this day, right? I still, every time it rains, I'm so grateful. I, I've taken back to, I, on the reservation. I would, I would wake up in the morning and greet the sunrise with my prayers. And this past few months, I've been going down to the Potomac River mm. and greeting the sunrise with my prayers over the river. Mm. 
And it has been one of the most life-giving things I've done here in DC, Mm. which is just to take that time several times a week, sitting by the water in a state of thanksgiving and prayer, watching the sun come up and just expressing gratitude towards Mm -hmm. creator for that. Mm. Like I mentioned before at the beginning of the episode, you were a presidential candidate in 2020. What was that experience like? And what did you learn about yourself in running for president? The experience was fascinating. I did it because I wanted to bring this dialogue to the forefront of our nation. Mm. I am convinced our nation needs to deal with the doctrine of discovery. We have to wrestle, not just uh, one of the challenges our nation has is because of the demographics, we tend to treat race and racism as a uniquely black and white dialogue, which is not true. Mm -hmm. Yes, there are massive dynamics that go on between the black and white communities that need to be dealt with and that are very racist and white supremacist, but that's not the sum of the dialogue. And there are many other things. Most people don't even know this, but Native men are actually more likely to be killed by police officers than white men, or than than black men. The highest rate of of people dying by police are Native men. Mm. People don't know that because, again, our numbers are much smaller, but we're just not aware of of how much this history affects all of our country. And so as I was speaking about the Doctrine of Discovery and calling for a national dialogue on race, gender, and class and wanting to build a nation where we the people truly means all the people, I realized probably one of the best ways to do that is to run for president with that as my campaign platform. Mm -hmm. And so I had several things I was very determined to do. A, I did not want to sell out to money. And I ran and, and I also didn't want to water down my message. And so I ran as an independent. I'm convinced the two-party system are both deeply invested in maintaining the status quo. Mm -hmm. The Republicans are explicitly racist and sexist and white supremacist, while the Democrats are implicitly racist and sexist Mm -hmm. and white supremacist, but they're all going towards the same goals. Mm -hmm. When even Ruth Bader Ginsburg is affirming the doctrine of discovery as the legal precedent for land titles, you know this is a bipartisan value. Mm -hmm. And so I, I wanted to run with the most clear voice I could. So I ran as an independent. I also felt very strongly that the people who needed to be campaigned to first was not the white men in Iowa and New Hampshire, right? Mm -hmm. Iowa is the fifth whitest state in the country. New Hampshire is the third. Iowa has the highest rate of of private land in the nation. New Hampshire has the highest rate of home ownership. Iowa has a state law requiring them to be the first caucus state. New Hampshire has a state law requiring them to be the first um, primary state. Because the two parties adhere to those laws, they literally make white landowning men the gatekeepers for presidential politics. Mm Mm-hmm. When I lived on the Navajo Nation, which is 26,000 square miles, if we were a state, we would be the 40th largest state. Mm. And not a single candidate 
came to our reservation to campaign to our people. The whole 10 years I was living on the reservation. And so I felt very strongly that if you want to be president, if you want to govern and lead this nation that encompasses Turtle Island, the group of people that you should campaign to first is not the white people in Iowa, New Hampshire, but the native peoples in lands all across the country. And so I was deeply committed to campaigning first and foremost to native nations and native peoples. And I spent the whole probably six, nine months, all the way up until 2020, campaigning primarily to native nations and native peoples. That cost us a lot as far as media exposure and even fundraising, but I felt like it was absolutely the right thing to do. And if I ran again, I would probably do the same thing all over again. Mm. Because that just is the most respectful and appropriate way to do it. One of the things that shocked me was how deeply invested the mainstream media is in supporting only the two-party system. Mm -hmm. I knew because I was running as independent, I would be sidelined. I knew because of the issues I was talking about, I would have to struggle to get coverage. I was not expecting national media outlets to blatantly ignore our campaign and in some instances even write us out of stories from events we were at. Wow. And that's that's what happened. And so that that took me a bit by surprise. And so I I it was it was a very interesting it was a very interesting experience. I didn't accomplish the goal I wanted to accomplish. I didn't get the national dialogue I was hoping to get. And there's a very good chance I'm still looking at what I want to do in 2024. But I'm still fairly convinced that running for that office and trying to engage the dialogue at that level is one of the best ways to bring these pieces of dialogue to the mm -hmm. forefront. And so 2024 is still very much an option for me. No final decision will be made. I'll, I'll, after the midterms of 2022, I'll take a look at kind of where I'm at and, and what the landscape looks like. But uh, I think it's it's still a possibility, but we'll see what happens. Hmm. So yeah, it was a it was a fascinating experience. The pandemic, of course, had a huge impact. Mm -hmm. We were one of the first campaigns to shut down our in-person campaigning. And uh, we were very concerned because I was campaigning to marginalized groups of people, and it was marginalized people who were at the bearing the brunt of mm -hmm. the pandemic. I did not want to put people who are supporting my camp my candidacy at risk in any way right and so we went virtual probably in march of 2020 and we remained virtual all the way till the end of the campaign wow we didn't do any other in-person events because i did not want to put the people supporting me how can i advocate how can i say i want to live in a nation where we the people means all the people when the pandemic because of the policies of the country is killing right. <laughs> the, the the marginalized people at a greater rate and so then by campaigning to them, I would only exacerbate that mm -hmm. because these communities did not have the protection or the health care or the resources they needed to fight the pandemic off in the first place. Second to last question, and it might be a very obvious one, but how is your work inspiring and liberating theological work? One of the things that I work very hard to do is to keep my voice independent. Mm. Over the past 20 years, 
I've partnered with a lot of denominations, a lot of institutions, a lot of agencies. And every single group at one point or another has come to me and said, you can't say that. Mm -hmm. Because of this, I've actually worked very hard to keep my voice independent. I've worked very hard to say, okay, I may not say this on your stage, but I'm still going to say it. I'm still going to put it out on my blog, on my own social media. I'm still going to speak at another conference. You may control your platform. You don't control my voice. Mm. And I've worked very hard to maintain that type of independence, which means I, I've had to really diversify my income streams because mm -hmm. I'm not working for any single institution or any small number of funders or anything else. I'm, I had to be creative in how I kept my voice independent. Because of that, it's given me the freedom to explore questions and look at theologies and, and, and write about things that may not typically be looked at by a mainstream denomination or mainstream church. And you know, the first four chapters of our book are a perfect example of that, where we talk about how the church got from the teachings of Jesus who said things like love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, how it got from that to a dehumanizing doctrine of discovery, mm. which gave Christians the right to kill people who didn't look like, speak like, act like, or worship like they did. One of the interesting analyses we had in the midst of that was a critique on the writings of Eusebius. And so my entire life, I blamed Christendom on Constantine. Right. And I've, I've, he's the one who converted to Christianity and moved the capital and, and, and Christianized Rome. And yet, as I was looking at, because I wanted to include in the book the, the story of Constantine's vision at, at the at Melvin Bridge. And that story is recorded by Eusebius, who was the bishop of Caesarea, who was kind of the mentor, the spiritual mentor. He baptized Constantine. And I realized as I was reading through his book, Ecclesiastical History, that he was literally propping up Constantine once the, the, the persecution of the Christians touched him personally. He lost kind of his allure for martyrs and began focusing on how can we get the emperors to save us and protect us. And so he literally feeds the heresy of Christian empire to Constantine. Constantine bites and creates Christendom. And then you have the theologian of the next century who have to deal with this heresy, primarily Augustine. And so does he decide to collude with this heresy or to prophesy to it? And he writes a just war theory. And then we have a critique of, his, of, of some of his writings in uh, Correction of the Donatists, where he literally states that the role of a Christian king in the Christian empire is to use fear, punishment, and pain to compel people to worship God and keep the commands of the church. Again, completely outside the teachings of Jesus. And some of the feedback I've gotten from even other theologians are, are theologians or even seminary students. And I've had some several people come to me and say, you know, I was asking some of these same questions in seminary, and I was not being given answers for those questions. Mm -hmm. I wanted to go down 
the trail that you went down with Eusebius or the trail that you went down with Augustine. And I, my, my academic institution or my professors or my church wouldn't let me go on those routes. And so because I was working so hard to keep my voice independent and I wasn't adhering to any single denomination or, or school or anything else, I was actually had a lot more freedom to look at those things mm -hmm. and to ask those questions and even to draw some of those conclusions. Mm. And I think, right, if we don't, if our, if our churches, our denominations, even our own self-interest prohibit us from asking some of these hard questions or looking at some of these difficult truths, then we're never going to have a good answer. We're never going to be fully satisfied with where we're at. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's one of the things that makes, and I, I don't know if I would even call myself a theologian, but it's what makes the work that I'm trying to do, the theologies I am discussing and the critiques I am giving, mm -hmm. these are literally my honest questions and my observations and my understandings as through study, through conversation, through my own my own reading of, yeah, how do we make sense of all of this? Mm -hmm. And I think that's what allows people to see that type of liberation and to to see that type of freedom coming from from our book and from the things I'm teaching on and stuff like that, mm -hmm. where I'm, I ask more of the unconventional questions that normally you would not be allowed to ask in a much more mainstream denomination or mm -hmm. church. Mm -hmm. That's lovely. Last question, Mark, how can listeners get connected to you and your work? Yeah. So I'm online. I'm fairly active on uh, YouTube as well as Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Um, my primarily, my primary uh, username is wireless Pogon. Uh, that's my YouTube. That's my Instagram. That's my Twitter. My Facebook is Mark Charles Wireless Hogan. I actually have a verified account on Facebook, so you can oh, find nice. me there pretty easily. Um, my website is wirelesshogan.com. And you can actually buy signed copies of my book at my website. Wonderful, which will be in the episode description. So, so be sure to check that out. Yeah, we have a link on the front page of the website. It's W-I-R-E-L-E-S-S. H-O-G-A-N.com, wirelesshogan.com. And um, I do a lot of things online. Every Several mornings a week, I live stream watching the sunrise. Oh. I also sit at this very same table three or, two or three times a week and have my second cup of coffee. Hmm. And I live stream kind of an analysis of the politics or the business of the day and what's going on in churches and other things like that. I'm also doing a series on our book on settling truths. And I'm going through on my live stream and, and kind of doing a study throughout the entire book. We're going to do chapter um, where uh, I'm doing chapter four this week. We'll do chapter five next week. Um, and then I'm starting another series on my, on my YouTube channel and my Instagram TV called, um, decolonizing faith, Wonderful. where I'm looking at some of these deeper theological questions and sharing some of my own journey of how I've been in the process of 25, 30 years now of decolonizing my own faith. Mm. And what does it look like to have a decolonized faith? Wonderful. Well, I really look forward to that, especially. Well, thank you so much, Mark, for sharing more about your book and all the work that you've been doing in the world. Uh, I was telling you a little bit ago that uh, you and I had met in person briefly for maybe like four or five years ago, and it's just incredible to see your work, uh, to see you now have a published book, to see you, you know, run for 
president and everything. It's just great to see all of this happening. And so thank you so much for your work and uh, for all of the theology that has inspired and even uh, liberated me. Thank you very much. It's been great to be on the show with you today. I hope you have a great rest of the day. If you would like to connect with Mark and the Chairman Dances and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. However long it takes